everybody, and welcome to the Makers of Minnesota podcast, where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And today I'm talking to Amita Joswell dale and she is the founder of Panache Beverages. And Amita, I first found out about you a couple years ago. I saw this apple juice product, uh-huh. and I was attracted to it because it was in really beautiful packaging. And then I ran into it again, and the packaging had been re-updated, and it sort of looked like, oh, it's it's got apple juice. This one had a kai berries, or it, it looked like it was kind of being repositioned in sort of the wellness space. And then I ran across it again, and it was a hard cider type of beverage, like a champagne <laughs> apple drink. So I was like, this is amazing that she's doing all these things. Welcome to the program. Thank you. You asked me originally how I became a food blogger. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, I don't know. Other than I had a company and I sold it. And that was about six years ago. And I was interested in food and I had been doing podcasts and talking to food makers on my radio show, Weekly Dish. And I just started a blog because I thought, oh, I want a place to collect all these thoughts. And I like making recipes and I like gardening oh. and so I just started and that was six years ago. And today, dare I say, it's actually a business because I have a cookbook and some other things. But yeah, it's funny how you just sort of follow your passion and you start something. Absolutely. And your path is pretty similar to mine. Tell me uh, about my, it. All right. My hat, main hat, I'm an academic teaching in the business school. So I kind of knew the nitty gritty details of what it takes to run a business and to form a business. But life got in the way, and my interests include uh, good food, um, things like traveling and curiosity about other cultures, uh, gardening. And uh, as an immigrant to Minnesota, I realized that we have so many good things here, but we don't add enough value to them. So when I saw the apple and how seasonal it was and many things you could do with it. I thought of my time as a student in in France, as a poor student working in the orchards to get some extra money. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. So it began on the kitchen table. And uh, I am also Asian, so I know a little bit about the cuisines and the use of food as medicine and, and the botanicals that come from there. So I did the low-hanging stuff first. I took the apple juice and uh, a quintessential apple juice, everyone is familiar with it, and then infused it uh, using ancient Ayurvedic recipes with the botanicals that sort of help you, the body, you, the person, from your gut all the way to your brain. So things like inflammation, antioxidation help, uh, things like immunity, calmness, muscle relaxing, natural melatonin. So that's how I got those four SKUs going. And I'm on my third generation with them in terms of packaging labels and uh, refining the recipe, making it shelf stable for a good year without uh, adding a ton of uh, chemicals, but just going with what FDA requires as a minimum. But then when you do this, you have the juice and you say, what else? So then you go up the chain and that's what I did. And I started to make hard cider. Uh, Not the way that many cideries do, which is brewing, but following the more traditional Irish-French route of fermenting, double fermentation. That's why you saw the cork and the cage. It it is 
it is truly metro champinoise and it is also if i may say so myself a fine prosecco of apples the color the bubbles are just great it's uh, something you can pamper yourself with at the end of a long day or celebrate with because of the bottle pops it's got an attitude <laughs> are you selling that in liquor stores I am the wine company is my distributor and okay. I'm in all Kowalskis. Uh, the juices, the non-alcohol ones are also in Kowalskis and Hy-Vees. So right now, all I want to do is scale and apply some more of the stuff I keep preaching so that I can scale and uh, have fun. Mostly this is all for expanding our food scene. In the Twin Cities, we have six chefs that are now nominated for the Beards, James Beards Award. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. Yes. We oh. have four in the traditional category, two in yeah. history, I believe. Yeah. yeah, it is wonderful because in the day and our radio show is 15 years old. So we started a long time ago and we would talk about the James Beard Awards, but it took mm -hmm. a long time for any Midwest folks to get recognized. Yes. I think yes. now our food scene is finally getting recognized and you know you're using our minnesota harvested apple yes. the apple that you know has made a ton of money for the university of minnesota we have a oh, lot absolutely of yes it's a great product for minnesota yeah. what was your history with the minnesota apple or were you an apple fan to begin with how did you settle on apples as a business person well two things my family my daughter likes apple juice and you know in the family we had combination of fruit juices, not just orange, but apple and others. But my exposure to the fruit goes back to my origins, the lower Himalayas and North India. But in France, you know, I came to actually touch and feel it. There were orchards everywhere in Brittany and Normandy, and you just had to pop out of the city to, to run into them. It's too cold up now there to have grapes. So for the first time in my life, I saw these pretty trees and pretty flowers. So it was in my consciousness. So when I came to Minnesota, settled here, I said, well, why not? And um, uh, it was also a revelation for me that most of the apples, as you said, coming especially from U of M, University of Minnesota, were all meant for table apples. And you sort of curated a few here and there from the table apples to make other things. And that's about it. But uh, it's a very versatile fruit. It's a fruit of the north. It's our base fruit. And with that, you can do a ton of things. So I said, all right, I'll get into it and see what I, what I can possibly do. And I wanted to be part of this burgeoning food scene that began in the 90s and then flourished in the 2020, 2000 and on. So this was just one way to participate and, and to have some other interest and to give a a venue to my passion. And all the way along, you were also a business professor. So did that inform how you brought your business to market? Nope. I made all the mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I, I mean, well, perhaps not all of them, but certainly 75% of the mistakes that get made, I did do them due to the fact that you know, translating theory to practice is uh, also a challenge. So yeah. can you think of like, when you say, oh, I made all the mistakes, are there like one or two that come to the top of your brain? The optimism about being able to finance it. Yes. That's one. And then, oh, 
everyone will love it. Why not? So being in love with your own product. Yes. Uh, and then not realizing that this, this love fest has to be cult- nurtured, cultivated. Yes. Explained. So those were the two main mistakes that I made. But they're pretty pretty common and also yeah. pretty big ones, which yes. is is so funny. And when you talk about financing, you know, you can go from a hobby to creating a product and most people can kind of bootstrap that. You can sell at a farmer's market and you can bootstrap that. But when you get into like heavy duty packaging or you get into the grocery space or, you know, you going into the alcohol space too is a whole different space. Absolutely. It requires funding. So was it hard to get funding? I'm assuming the answer is yes. Yes and no. It was hard. I had to self-finance it. And I initially began this also to give one of my MBA students exposure to American business practices. This young man was an international student and he wanted to be a part of the U.S. business scene. And so I said, fine, we'll, let's see if he could do this. So it began as something small. So initial funding was all right, but when you need funding to scale, that's where the challenges come in. So I did uh, work with Deed and other business uh, state agencies that was helpful. And now currently, um, I am finding that I am able to balance my academic career with this, but I do need some serious funding to scale. I've come to that stage. Yeah. And I was just having a conversation with someone earlier today about you get into the packaged goods business and you feel like you've sort of arrived because you have this sort of legitimacy and you have this package on the shelf and everybody assumes you've really made it. And then your first statement comes. And you've spent, you know, $30,000 to get there and you have seven in return. Yeah. And it takes a lot of wind out of your sails to realize that the packaged goods business isn't super lucrative for many people. And it's like a whole nother layer and a whole nother learning curve. And I imagine, are you on the beginning of that curve or kind of in the middle? I think I'm between 30 to 50% okay. progress in the curve. And I realized that when I met with the um, regional manager of Cisco in town and at a, at a, a, meet, at a get together, the Cisco had organized for BIPOC businesses. Yep. And um, uh, there, um, they did recognize my products as being disruptive. So I said, oh, good, I have a chance there. I have a good, solid footing, and I'm standing tall at least. And then they said something else that was, we never think of putting it that way often enough in uh, our own academic world. And that is, the person said, when you know that it is on the mental list, at least, if not on the physical list of a shopper, oh, they have to get this drink, or what? Uh, maybe I should look at this. As they enter the store, you have not arrived. So I don't think our panache is there, but at least regionally, I'm hoping it will be there in that sort of a mindset. And so that's the curve, the hump you have to go through. (laughs) So when you, you know, you get told that and you internalize that. Yeah. Is that 
a challenge and feels exciting to make that happen? Or do you sometimes feel discouraged? Or both. It is a challenge and it feels good. I think we can get there. That's the days when you're feeling optimistic and positive. And then there are days when you're saying, oh, Lord, no, look at Red Bull. They literally threw away production after production as free samples, and it took them so long. And it's a totally different drink. It is energy. It's full of caffeine. And mine has natural energy. Now, how can I get there without the million? So, you know, it goes back and forth. But I suppose you get the opportunity to use all the things you've learned and try to put them into practice. Yes. Yes. Um, Are there other products that you see in the Twin Cities that you get inspired by or you think, wow, these people are doing a great job? Uh, Chicka Boom Pop. I think that's what it's called. Boom Chicka Pop. Yeah, Angie. Ah, Boom Chicka Pop. Absolutely. I wondered what their journey was. I don't have the possibility of connecting with the founder owner, but that was a very quick journey. So I want to know more about it. A couple of the journeys are outside the CPG industry. And uh, then uh, the the journey of uh, uh, beyond CPG, consumer packaged goods, the journey of chefs, the journey of uh, uh, introducing and fusing and one cuisine with another and how that takes over. Um, Because after all, you know, we individuals, we human beings, we always want to explore and grow. And the scene in Minnesota has grown tremendously uh, in the past couple of decades. So I would like to pick on a couple nuggets, obviously one few chefs and others to hear from them, to see what their journey is. And your blog does some good stuff there too. too. Thank you. When you think of um, some chefs or some restaurants you like, what are they? They are the ones that uh, push the envelope. So I would say um, not the more established ones that are also pushing the envelope, like Meritage and others. But I'm looking at Chef Yang and a couple of Persian chefs in town and uh, also uh, Arepa. You know, but these places do come and some of them are, are a huge flash and they go away. Yeah, I would yeah. like to see how to sustain. And, you know, mentioning uh, those units, Cafe Latte is family owned. Yep. It's been there since I first came here and it hasn't lost momentum. No. I would love to know how to do that. Well, and you know, their son, <laughs> Linda yeah. and Peter Quinn are the founders of that uh-huh. restaurant and their uh-huh. son started Love Your Melon. Yes. And sold yes. it and made yes. a gajillion dollars. Yes. Um, so they are, it's funny, they have this one business that they just pluck away at and it just stays busy and they just good food. You know, they, they don't get Absolutely. too fancy. They don't get yeah. too fussy into different yeah. trends. Yeah. They just throw yeah. it out there. Um, but that is an interesting place to think about and how consistently right. they've been. Right. And and the fact, the story of Love Your Melon had a good network and good support. So they were able to take off very quickly. That sort of support also is something I am working at. And the business that I have is actually behind the scenes working on things like that, mm-hmm. working with the state of Minnesota deed. Brian Erickson, Neela Molgaard at Launch Minnesota to put policy in place so that new food items, more interesting ones, more healthy ones come to the forefront. 
uh, we all cannot have the network that Love Your Melon had. Right. So in that gap, who comes in? U of M, C fans, Auri. So the policy side behind food is also where I'm uh, active, along with food tech. Because, you know, I have been visiting orchards and working with them for a while now, and I'm noticing there's a lot of waste. Some of the fruit that is not pretty and cannot end up on retail shelf can go elsewhere. Yeah. Then something else can be done. And for that, you need identifiers. So I'm work, working with deep learning to form, to cultivate, to activate these identifiers that can then be put into equipment to become handheld sensors and things like that. So, uh, and I wouldn't be able to do all this uh, policy on food and food tech if I hadn't launched the business, if I right. hadn't worked with the apples. So one thing feeds into another and all of this I can take and, and talk about it to whoever is interested, students or whoever. One thing that I'm noticing a lot, in, I've been doing this podcast now, I think I'm going on year five and uh, the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. while tragic and horribly sad and unjust, there has been a positive outcome of the unrest that resulted from that murder in that people are finally seeing makers and seeing BIPOC business owners as well as more women business owners and more money is flowing where the mouth has been for some time. So has that been a nice thing to see both for your personal business, but also in your business life? Cause you've been doing this a long time. About, f- about four or five years now. Yes. Yes, I have noticed this change. It's not a sea change. It's just a stream that is now going in a new direction. And uh, I've also noticed that the intentions are very, very good. And a lot of money is being put there, but not in a focused, planned way. Okay, for example, the Main Street Revitalization Grant that came about. A lot of money has been allocated, given and it's there, but it's given to units that do not have steady roots to grow. Right. So I think another way to handle it is to give it to a business who may not qualify with all of the boxes checked, but this business is is able to have roots. And then once you give the money to the business, you can always say, you have to sign a contract that you're going to train, you're going to take care of X many individuals who are needy, or BIPOC or whatever. And that's one way you can develop the ecosystem. So there's money, there's good intentions, but I don't know if there's good enough planning to do that. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, we talked about Love Your Melon and we talked about those connections. He was a student at St. Thomas. He was white. He had parents who had lived in the community who were entrepreneurs. Even if you get money or even if you get a grant or get funded, if you don't have that base of people that believe in you, that mentor you, that support you, because maybe you don't see other people like you in those communities. Yeah. It is it is really challenging. And those that's something yes. that I guess I've learned for myself. That's privilege right there. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't even see what you have in front of you as a white person because it's just always been there your whole life. Right, right. But I think with the with the product in 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 view of people with uh, what I now know from my experience of running a business, um, it is getting easier to combine uh, the operational side of business with the policy side and tech side and and gain legitimacy. 
Yep. So with scaling, I'd love to gain that legitimacy and to be able to perhaps mentor, perhaps bring along others. I don't know. Well, and the idea that you're thinking about that means you probably are not even being intentional about it because you're sharing knowledge and knowledge is wealth and power. When you think about scaling, is there like a book or resources that you think people need to prepare themselves before they think about scaling? Because you're trying to scale in a big way. Yes, yes. And I have had some knocks as I as I myself knocked on doors. I was knocked down quite a few times. The CPG industry, whether we like it or not, is in the hands of the big guys. Yeah. Volume matters. And the, given the geography of our country, it matters because you can't be producing small batches all around creation here. You got to consolidate it and the logistics and all comes in. So the big guys are there and necessarily so. I would like to see the big guys, whether they are the distributors like Yunfi, Cisco, etc., and the big CPG company, and we have them in town, uh, literally put aside their resources as it is meant for companies that are emerging. And as they emerge, they can become partners, they can be acquired, but I think that's very important. And I do not see that. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed Coca-Cola over the years has grown more by acquisition than internal growth of its original products. Yeah. It but is... their, mo their motive remains always profit. And that's a good motive. It's a good driver. But I think that profit motive needs to take on new definitions and expand a little more. <laughs> yeah. And you see that too in like the craft beer industry. Yes. You yes. know, that very few, these big guys are just going along and picking up entrepreneurial companies and trying to find the right matches. Yeah. It's interesting. They're not spending a lot on research and development these days. It's mostly acquisition. So they let people like you do the work of building the products and ideating and making all the mistakes until you're yeah. just right and ripe and ready. And then they'll pick yeah. you off. Yeah. And that's when I was knocked down because I thought it was a good time to have gained their interest. But funnily enough, they would always come back and say, we need at least a minimum of 250000 as your EBIT earnings before interest and tax. And I'm saying... If a company reaches that level of EBIT, do they really need you? Maybe not. No, probably not. <laughs> so uh, I think somewhere the dots are not getting connected. And we are a rich agricultural society. We are too much into the mono thing, the mono crops, the wheats, the soybeans, all in volume. Yes. But if we can add value, instead of exporting all these grains, we can add value to them in the country and make really good stuff instead of just relying on wheat for all kinds of products. There are so many different crops we can bring in, rotate crops, make agriculture more sustainable. But I think that's a different conversation. It is. And it would be a good conversation with ag policy. And we're talking about the farm bill right now. And it just, mm -hmm. it makes my head explode with frustration that we're still doing everything the same way. But it is the start of these conversations that eventually turns that wheel, which is a very bigger wheel than you and I. So I am excited to meet you. I'm excited about Panache Apple products. 
I will look for you in my Kowalskis and they've been so great about supporting local makers. And it was just really nice to meet you. I hope our paths cross again. I hope so too. And I would love to work with individuals like yourself uh, and some uh, influencers as well as people gifted in social media and all aspects of it, because that's not my strength. Okay. Good to know. I will follow up with you on that. Thank you for your time. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.